Klitz, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome to the Middle East Political Science Podcast. On this week's book segment, we talked to Jill Jarvis about her new book, Decolonizing Memory, Algeria and the Politics of Testimony. We also talked to Jonah Schulhofer-Wohl and Kevin Kohler about their new article on the response by Arab states to the COVID pandemic. Finally, we talked to Sean Yom and Wael Al-Khatib about their new report for the Project on Middle East Democracy about the prospects for reform in Jordan. Thanks for listening to our program. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's book segment, we're joined by Jill Jarvis of Yale University, author of the new book, Decolonizing Memory, Algeria and the Politics of Testimony. Uh, Jill, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. So to start off, why don't you just tell us a little bit about the book, um, where it came from, and what you were trying to accomplish with it? Sure. Um, well, it was written over the process of probably the last 10 years because it was my dissertation and is now my first book. Um, so Decolonizing Memory, it's a book that reads history, specifically Algerian history, through the prism of literature. Um, and I kind of trace a loose chronology across four chapters, which I think we'll talk about a bit later. Um, weaving together close readings of literary fiction with close readings of theoretical, juridical, legal, visual activist works that concern state violence, right? Um, disappearance, detainment, torture, genocide, right? These works that have circulated um, both within and outside of Algeria in wake of both the long war to end 130 years of French occupation, right? So the Algerian War for National Independence, which lasted from 1954 to 1962, and also the war on civilians, as I call it, also called the, the dark decade during the 1990s. Right. And so this more recent war, the 1990s war, often referred to as La Décennie Noire, or the Dark Decades, really transformed Algeria into a kind of crucible for the failures of decolonization and a, and a theater, in a sense, for a supposed battle between modern secular democracy and anti-modern Islamists, and also into a key ally on the Maghreb front of the US-led global war on terror. And then starting in 1999, President Abdelaziz Bouteflika uh, came to power and his government passed a series of laws that both legislated a formal end to that 1990s conflict and also really deeply entrenched government authority to justify ongoing forms of repression in the name of fighting terror, right? sort of in line with the, the war on terror's ideals. Right? So my book really moves through all of this, starting really sort of in the moment of decolonizing war, anti-colonial war, up through the present, really to the moment that the Hirak, the massive people's movement, began in Algeria in 2019, um, which is when I was finishing my book. And that movement, as you all may know, overthrew Bouteflika, among so many other things. Um, and it also totally transformed the horizon of my conclusions. Then the pandemic happened, right? So the book sort of ended in chaos, really, um, with those things happening. What's that? That seems appropriate. Yeah, it really does. And we're still living in in sort of that sort of yeah. ongoing chaos. Um, and I actually haven't back, been back to Algeria for years because of um, political issues. I haven't been able to get a visa and also because of the pandemic. So I'm talking about this book and writing about it at a sense of remove um, and sort of nostalgia almost for a time when I could go there to do research. But so I think neither of those wars is truly distinct from the other and neither is truly over, which is what the Hirak demonstration in some sense really made manifest. And if we take seriously what the people on the streets themselves were saying in 2019, 2020, 
the Hirak, right, which just means movement in Arabic, right, the, the movement, this grassroots people's movement, really was or is the unfinished work of decolonizing. Um, so go ahead. No, go ahead. And so, and we can talk about this more too. So I, I trace a temporal arc that really isn't about periodizing a, a specific time in Algerian history, but um, sort of departs from this established trend in both historical and literary studies scholarship that has kind of narrated Algeria's modern history in these three distinct phases, right? You've got colonization, French colonization from 1830 to 1962, then the anti-colonial or sort of the, the war for independence that I just named, and then the civil war. And I think it's important to find other temporal scansions for thinking of and making sense of these histories. And Malika Rahal, the historian has pointed this out and just published a really interesting, incredible people's history of Algeria, 1962, right? Um, and Malika Rahal has turned to things like oral histories as other forms of, of narrating history and drawing these connections. I take my cue from the really unruly literary works, mm -hmm. right? So I'm a, I'm a literary scholar, a close reader. You really get into the texture of literary works and foreground in my readings in this book, these out of joint temporal scansions that help us to see continuities between periods of violence that have often been framed as discrete. I mean, even the sort of colonial era, then post-colonial era sort of markers help to relegate colonial violence to a story about the past, right? And I think it's important to just disrupt that and also articulate connections between sites of violence well beyond Algeria's borders. I mean, there are real ways in which sort of French state violence against Algerians has resonated for Palestinians, has resonated for people um, in the Black Lives Matter movement. There were a lot of connections between civil rights movements and Black Panthers activists and um, anti-colonial uh, militants in Algeria, right? So I think it's just important to be able to articulate all of that. I think that uh, literature has this way of registering these connections in unique ways and also enacting kinds of haunting that help us to see and feel the ways that the past is never really past. Right, so uh, I'll wrap up my intro soon, but in the way of a close reading literary scholar, which is what I am, <laughs> I linger over these impasses, disconnects, swerves brought to light by a network of literary texts that I call anarchival, um, taking that word from, from scholars whom I admire, to really think about how Algerian writers have experimented with and transformed the genre of testimony in ways that dispute the authority of the nation state to serve as the arbiter of justice. All right, so there's... There's an intro, I guess, to the book. Well, to that's, a, that's a great place to start um, because, you know, so I, I come to this as a political scientist and um, and uh, an avid consumer of, of history. And so looking at these very similar questions through the lens of literature is somewhat new to me and absolutely fascinating to see the different ways that your methodology allows you to approach these questions of memory and testimony and witnessing and the like. And I, I think it might be interesting for uh, our audience for you to say a little bit about that, about your method and the value of literature for giving voice to these sorts of uh, concerns. Mm -hmm. Anecdotally, I just want to say I was doing this research in Algeria in 2013-14, and I was a literary scholar surrounded by historians who were constantly fighting with the National Archives, right, to get in order to get in, in order to see what they needed to see. And in like just some sort of real way, got a sense of just what it is to, to have to deal with the way that state power and archives are interconnected. And I felt this sort of 
wild freedom that I just got to read literary works that circulated in other ways. But I think that the my method is really informed by this sense of the way that literature and the unverifiable works with different evidentiary protocols than those that constrain or that shape the genres of professional historiography, right? And grapple with the archive in really different ways. Um, and so, so the question, I guess there's a question of like, how is literature political? Um, that and how is testimony political? And there's a clue here in how I think about this in the book's epigraph from Guy Spivak, right? Literature is not evidence, but an instrument for imaginative training. Right. And she actually spoke these words as the conclusion to her tribute to the Algerian writer Essie Jebar at a memorial for Essie Jebar that I organized um, in 2013 at Princeton after Jebar's death. And it just it has resonated with me, right? Literature is an instrument for imaginative training. Um, so literature, which is in the domain of the unverifiable, has particular ways, I think, of doing epistemological work and really shaping not just what we know, but how we know. Um, and so that's the sort of, that's what I bring as a literary scholar and how I teach. Um, and I could, I mean, the other epigraph in some ways of the, the book, the first opening epigraph mm -hmm. in some ways demonstrates this. It's drawn from a novel, uh, Memoire de l'Absent, uh, Memory of the Absent by the Algerian novelist Nabil Fares, right? And this, this parenthetical clause just kind of comes into this long sentence that takes up a whole paragraph and says, completely off sort of off topic, Muslim, right, Muslims. This term registered the exclusive state in which colonial society had held us since 1830 in the various legal decrees announcing the decrepitude in which we were to be kept. French Muslims said some, fully Muslims said others, while neither of these two names could give us the illusion of any legal access, right? So in the middle of this novel, we get this muttered commentary on this word that opens up space on the page to veer away from the narrative present and to confront this the, the history of 130 years of French legal occupation in Algeria, right? So Algeria was ground zero of this uniquely strange juridical regime that um, I think is sort of, sort of at the heart of my obsession with testimony and the ways in which these literary works are themselves obsessed with testimony because testimony is a genre that works in the face of the law, right? But from its, and I'll just maybe a, a bit of context, right? From its legal annexation to France in the mid 19th century until Algeria's independence in 1962, this thing called Algérie Française was founded on a legal distinction drawn between French citizen and then this other category of ghostly non-citizen subject that was called Musulman. It was actually well, indigène Musulman and indigène Israelite, right? But these are not religious categories, but markers in a sense of disposability under French law. Right, who didn't count as citizens, right? And those categories and codes evolved, evolved over time to facilitate a state-sponsored violence whose destructive impact I think has really not been calculated or worked through. I mean, and historians have, have tried to work at this, but there's a way in which literary works are a supplement, this historiographical work to try to account for or register the real um, enduring violence of that founding sort of juridical regime, right? So. In some ways, and this is in some sense the argument of the book, <clears throat> the magnitude of the legal violence that was exercised by the French to colonize and occupy Algeria for 130 years is such that really only aesthetic works, in particular, but not only literary works, mm -hmm. have been able to register the enduring effects of this violence, right? So I'm interested in tracking these 
responses of writers to the historiographic impasse that is sometimes called like the problem of subaltern testimony, right? And it's encountered by historians in a number of different ways, right? Um, uh, historians of colonization, historians of slavery. I'm thinking of Saidia uh, Hartman here. Like, what do you do uh, with an archive that is founded on these violent erasures, right? And how do you see or hear what history has rendered ghostly? No, that's, um, that's fascinating. Um, I want to come back and pick up ex uh, uh, those themes. But before that, I, I don't want to lose an earlier thread from your opening sure. uh, comment um, when you were talking about periodization. And I was very struck by your argument early in the book about people talking about post-war in 1945 as being post-war and sure. pointing out that for Algerians, it was quite the contrary, that this is actually um, not post-war at all. And then later you talk about uh, when you get to 1962 and independence and this long discussion of who gets to count as a martyr, what does it mean to be independent or to be liberated? And the way you, the way you talk about these periods is just fascinating to me. And maybe you could say a little bit more about how how you think about these, you know, these passages of time and place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, I, uh, on this point of colonial violence is very powerful and enduring in ways that cannot be overstated, right? It's not out there way back when, but it's also sort of shaped the temporal markers uh, that, that we continue to use, right? So on the point about post-war and here, I mean, I'm amplifying so much of thinking about trauma memory testimony studies has come out of studying uh, World War II and in particular the Shoah and the Holocaust and the horrors of, of that violence, right? And thinking about a world after that war, right? Um, so I'm, but then reading Algerian works like Keteb Yassin's Nejma that's grappling with that very moment, but from a, from a position that's grounded by um, the experience of colonization in Algeria, like the, the term post-war totally cracks open or makes no sense. And I'm amplifying this important point from an art historian named Hannah Feldman, who argues in her book, From a Nation Torn, um, that post-war is not a neutral or shared reference. We all have learned to use it to designate after 1945, right? But that institutionalizes European experiences of World War II and really, um, what is the word, elides or also obscures the fact erases. that this is a time of intense, what was that? Erases. Erases. Erases the very real fact that it's a time of escalating anti-colonial resistance, first of all, right, the period from 1945 to 1960, um, but also eclipses, you know, the century or more of colonizing war and indigenous resistance that was underway before 1945. So it just, it doesn't, it doesn't, like, this is what I mean by other temporal scansions, mm -hmm. right? So from an Algerian standpoint, the date, 8th of May, 1945, that signifies, you know, victory and sort of the triumph over fascism from, from a European perspective is the name or sort of the, the date that has become the name for these series of massacres, the Satif, Gelma, and Herata massacres um, and repressions that were undertaken by the French state operating in a fascist way to crush um, Algerian nationalism, expressions of nationalism, right? So it just like there's this it, it just really does away with the sense of anything being post-war. Um, on, oh, there's, I, I could go on. <laughs> there's, there's, so, there's so much. <laughs> um, on the question of like sort of independence and decolonization, um, also being sort of decolonization as a temporal like period. Um, I have a lot to say. I mean, I'm drawing insight from Todd Shepard's book, The Invention of Decolonization there. Yeah. Right, but this point that like decolonization in a real sense hasn't yet happened between Algeria and France, but French 
governments and institutions invented this idea of decolonization as the sort of inexorable step after colonialism as a kind of exorcism, right? To like to do erase again um, and to move on quickly from 130 years of profound entanglement, right? So it just like has created forms of collective forgetting and it's a way for the French state to distance itself um, from its crimes in Algeria. And then the Algerian state after, you know, headed by the FLN after 1962, I think then weaponized, right, that idea of a radical break with the colonial past in a number of ways, um, including, like, in, especially during the 1990s, it was explicitly sort of um, weaponized, instrumentalized, like we are the inheritors of the revolution, the state. Um, and so whatever they were doing could not be sort of compared to what a colonial state had done, right? Um, and like the, the protesters during the, 19, the 2019 Iraq on the streets were actually explicitly drawing those connections um, that the state had avoided. Um, I have, can I say one more thing? Of course. <laughs> um, I mean, nothing break, makes this more clear and materialized to me, like the fact that decolonization hasn't happened and the enduring temporality of French colonization. Um, nothing makes this more clear than the fact that from 1960 to 1962, the French government detonated 17 nuclear bombs in Algeria, right? Um, including most of them actually after independence. So the French collaborated or sort of in the Evian Accords, there were these agreements that the Algerian conceded to the French, allowing them to continue nuclear bombing in the Algerian Sahara, right? Exactly, all that testing. And that history has not been accounted for in histories of decolonization. So like, I mean, I think it just totally throws open or breaks open state-sanctioned histories of, of decolonization. Um, and in a sense, there's a very, very real material afterlife that is ongoing and devastating, right, from French colonial violence, right? So I think that's why it's important not to let these sort of temporal categories stand. Yeah, it's, re it's really interesting. Um, and so... so let me bring those two together. Um, move to the chapter that you wrote about uh, about the Shoah, the camps, and the Gambin, and um, you have this really, really fascinating reading, cross reading, uh, intertextual reading of of theory and literature. And um, I'd let, rather let just let you describe it because you'll be much better at it than I am. Um, but uh, but you know the chapter I'm talking about. I do, I do, and. Um... This is actually the origin point of the book, uh, this chapter. So I might tell it as a story. <laughs> Go for it. Um, but so in in that chapter, just briefly, like I grapple with this very disturbing oversight that I find in Agamben's work, in particular, a book called Remnants of uh, Sorry, Remnants of Auschwitz, um, in which he thinks about this figure of the Musulman, uh, which is a name for the most dehumanized um, prisoners in the Nazi camps. Uh, so I grapple with that and some oversights there and then turn to literary works by Zaya Rani um, in order to sort of compensate for it to rethink Agamben's theorizing testimony, right? So that's what that chapter sort of lays out. But grappling with Agamben's oversight, which I'll talk about in a second, was a spark point that really got me tangling with, with all of the issues in this book. Um, and it came from, I was actually, if I go back to my first semester of grad school at Princeton, I took this course in the religion department that was team taught by Cornel West and Jeffrey Stout. And they had this book called Horrorism, Naming Contemporary Violence on the syllabus by Adriana Cavarero. Um, and so it's an attempt, it's a really, really interesting book, but she had sort of defines this neologism 
horrorism as a replacement for terrorism, right, as a more accurate and meaningful name for the kinds of violence that destroy our world today. And like many analysts of extreme violence, she turns to Auschwitz to help work through exactly what she means by horrorism and draws on works by Arendt, by Primo Levi, and by Agamben. So that's where I first encountered this text, Remnants of Auschwitz, and this word. So Cavarero picks up the word from Agamben, who gets it from Levi, um, Musulman. Right, which was used in the deranged jargon of the Nazi camps, specifically Auschwitz, to name the prisoners at the bottom of the hierarchy, right? So like the walking dead, those who are totally destroyed by the violence of the camps. Right, and I just, I was so bothered, <laughs> but first by Cavarero not really talking about the, the colon, colonial resonances of the term, but then in particular by Agamben, because I, I started reading Remnants of Auschwitz and I found it stunning that he could develop this entire argument about I mean, this is part of the Homer Sucker project, but he's really thinking through the paradox of testimony in this book, right, around the figure of the Musulman at Auschwitz, right? So the Musulman becomes for him like the master metaphor for thinking bare life, right, this absence at the heart of the camp. And it's also central to his formulation of the founding apparia at the heart of the genre of testimony, right, which is that like the... the those who have really witnessed the true horror of that violence cannot, are not here to testify, right? They cannot tell their story, right? But he doesn't think about, I mean, the, the word sort of simultaneous function as a juridical category of French occupation in Algeria, right? Musulman, that, that phrase that I read to you from Farhez's novel, right? So it sort of elides this entire colonial genealogy that also haunts the epithet. Um, and that I found just so disturbing. So I started to write about it and kept writing it, coming back to, I wrote an article called Remnants of Muslims that takes up that oversight that then became this chapter. And then I was really trying to think through, so like, how else do we think testimony? And I was really struck by works by the writer Zahia Rahmani, who I met because I invited her to give some talks here and we started talking and I read her work and she actually, in her literary works um, that I analyze in this chapter, she actually thinks through a colonial gene genealogy of that term and like Agamben's work is an intertext for her, right? So I think she's able to take on the paradoxes of testimony opened up by Agamben, but to think them in a much more expansive frame um, that I think tells us something really important about what literature can do to theorize testimony and to theorize memory um, otherwise. So I think Rahmani and, and literary fiction is a much better starting point than say a theorist like Agamben. Um, and if I could say one more, I guess this is a bit theoretical, That's but fine. this gets might get us to thinking about the subsequent chapter also. Um, right, so I said, you know, it, Agamben really uses the epithet Musulman and, and makes it a figure for thinking in a kind of master metaphor to name an ontological condition, right, of life exposed to and radically destroyed by the power of the state, right, the bio, biopolitical power of the state. Um, so this formula, right, ontological destruction through exposure to state violence also implies an overlap between juridical personhood, right, that's what the Nazi machine strips away as juridical personhood. Um, but also human status. There's a kind of overlap in Agamben's argument between juridical personhood and humanness, mm -hmm. right? In a way that also implicitly binds human life to the power of the state, to the power of the modern nation state in ways that preempt challenging the law's authority to decide what is human. And in Rahmani's literary works, I also find this way that she 
is able to sort of think through in literary form, a model for a theory of justice not so tangled up with the state, much more fugitive and elusive um, and able to sound out demands for justice that I think question rather than confirm the state's power to define what qualifies as human. And that follows directly or leads directly then, as you said, into your next chapter. I mean, as you're really thinking about testimony and, and uh, the ability to witness violence, that this really incredibly, this remarkable uh, case of Jamila Bobada and the attempt to force the French public and the French judiciary to confront the realities of colonial violence and torture. It's a, it's a truly remarkable episode. Uh, so tell us about how you read this and, and what happened. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, there's this whole sort of nexus of text and that text, Jamila Bupesha, um, is the one I, I focus on in this chapter. And other scholars have thought about these a bit. I mean, many of them have thought about this. Uh, so that we're talking sort of 1960, 1961, in the wake of the shocking revelations to French intellectuals of just how violent. Um, I mean, just think of scenes from the Battle of Algiers of, of the French uh, military officers torturing Algerians, right? Those kinds of revelations were coming out in the French public and people were really taking arms to, to side with, to stand in solidarity with Al Algerians, right? This chapter follows closely from this wrestling that I was doing with Agamben and Rahmani. And it's like my effort to come to grips with the unstable, unstable and unruly genre of testimony. So it's a real meditation on the genre of testimony that I do through this study of these testimonial documents that were produced like this one, Jamila Bupasha, were produced on behalf of Algerian militants during the really incandescent violence of that war for national independence. Um, so there were a lot of French leftist intellectuals like Sartre, like Simone de Beauvoir, uh, and numerous others who were siding with or take, making public stances on behalf of Algerians. Um, and many of them were joining forces with lawyers working for the FLN, the, the Revolutionary Front that was leading the, the the anti-colonial movement, um, joining forces with them to work in solidarity with Algerians. Right, so this is a really interesting moment to think through the possibilities and limits of testimony as a genre. And I explored this case of the, the FLN militant Jamila Bupasha, who is often confused with Jamila Buharid, another FLN militant who was famously defended by the lawyer Jacques Vergès. Um, but so, so this is 1961. This is a, like a slightly lesser known Jamila. <laughs> um, and this is the same moment. And this was in my thinking. This is the same moment the Eichmann trial is underway in Jerusalem, right? So making testimony to, uh, about the horrors of the Shoah radically public for the first time, right? As an instrument in a legal process of doing historical justice, right? But I'm thinking up through these, these other instances of testimony and in which testimony fails to get any kind of justice really, right? So Jamila Prussia. She was in prison in Algeria. She was accused by the occupying forces of planting a bomb and she was at risk of being executed as a terrorist. Um, and she writes to the lawyer Giselle Halimi, who works for the FLN. She's in France. She's um, Tunisian born. She's working in France and Algeria. Um, and she, she says to Halimi in this letter like that she had confessed to planting the bomb, but the confession was gotten under torture, right? So she had been tortured. It was a false testimony. And she can't be heard and she's at her wit's end, really. Um, so Halimi takes up the case and she enlists Simone de Beauvoir, right, uh, who has incredible name recognition and um, can, can really get this uh, public. So they lobbied on her behalf. Um, they formed a committee. They produced this incredible text, which I don't have 
well, I don't have in front of me, but it's it's um it's signed on the cover by all kinds of famous intellectuals, and they got Picasso to draw a portrait of Jamila Bupachet on the cover. Right, it's, to actually, get it's actually reproduced in your book; people can see it. Yeah, exactly. Like this incredible portrait by Picasso. Um, to get justice for Jamila by making her case incredibly visible and translatable in a sense, and to really expose the crimes of the of colonial violence, to expose torture. So she became a symbol, um, but they also wanted to make sure she didn't get executed. And the case totally failed. Like no one was ever charged with, let alone convicted for torturing and raping her while she was in detention. Um, but they did drag on the affair long enough to save her from being executed, and she got amnesty in 1962 with independence, as did her presumed torturers. Right, but so I can kind of go from this story to what I'm really thinking through here. Like what I'm doing is not reading these testimonial accounts to kind of reconstruct the, the facts, right? Not as evidence in that sense or historical documents, but really as literary texts and as a way to think through think through the genre of testimony. And I'm especially interested in what I noticed over time, like coming back to these, I mean, all the works I write about in this book, I was just obsessed with for some reason. So I just kind of kept coming back to them. And what bothered me was the ways that the Algerian testimonies um, were framed in these limiting ways. And like the testimonies seemed to misfit the, the genre frames in which they were being sort of pressed in order to be visible, to circulate, right? To make an impact politically. Right, so they resist this kind of translation in certain ways and put pressure on the, the generic frame of testimony in ways that I think call into question serious limits on the French legal system or legal frameworks for doing justice in these situations of colonial violence. Right, and open space for other kinds of plaints to emerge. So that's what I find so fascinating about that text is the way it's this extraordinary collected document. It has like 200 pages sort of narrating Jamila's experience. It puts together all of these. It's like an archive itself. The text creates this whole archive. Um, but there's so much more like detail that emerges in the from the text. It has nothing to do with verifiable proof with legal protocols, but it's about you know constructing a narrative, but not just that. There are other things that sort of slip through the cracks and like smuggle in a multitude of other plaints that demand space and time in which to be fully heard. And it becomes clear like those plaints are never going to be heard in a courtroom at the time and nor have they since, right? There have been no legal proceedings to deal with the sort of genocidal violence of French colonization in Algeria, um, unlike in other situations like after the Holocaust or say, you know, after there not been truth and reconciliation processes, right? Um, and I'll just say a word on testimony as a genre and maybe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so but, this is the subversive power, I think, that comes through in, in this chapter for me or what I was trying to get to. Um, and, I, and I was thinking this through with the help of Derrida, who I like to remind people is an Algerian um, Jew who left Algiers when he was 18 for the first time. Right, but he's thinking through the genre of testimony in a couple of different works, uh, the politics and poetics of witnessing and um, fiction and testimony. There's another work, right, but testimony by definition addresses legal authority with a grievance and claims to be true, has a implicit structural relationship to the law, but is also haunted by very definition by the possibility of perjury in fiction, right? Hence all the codes and oaths you have to swear to make sure that you aren't lying, right? But the, the testimony itself is haunted by the possibility of literary fiction. And so there's this like constitutive defining unverifiability at the very heart of testimony, a kind of secret um, possibility of fiction. 
um, and that, that, that makes a demand on the listener or on the reader, right? So what the witness says is like, I was there, I saw this, this is my experience. And it makes this demand that can't be verified, right? It can only be believed in the kind of reciprocal act of, of trust, right? So I just took the time in that chapter to try to explore that genre um, by looking at these, these activist testimonial texts. And that then connects to the ways I read literary works. I mean, explicitly literary works in the, in the subsequent chapters, but I, I see them as all intertextual and experimenting with that unstable, unverifiability at the heart of the genre of testimony. Yeah, it's, just, it's absolutely fascinating. There's so much more in the book um, and uh, I highly uh, urge people to go and read it and experience it themselves. Uh, uh, so we're, uh, Jill, thank you so much for joining us and talking about this book and, um, and uh, can't wait to see where you go with it from here. Thank you so much for giving me the time to talk with you about it. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's article segment, we're joined by Kevin Curler and Jonah schulhofer wall both of Leiden University, talking about their new article, Governing the COVID-19 Pandemic in the Middle East and North Africa, which was just published by Middle East Law and Governance. Jonah, Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us, Mark. Thanks, Mark. So why don't we start off if you could just tell us a little bit about the article, the major contribution, and uh, what you want people to know about it. Uh, Kevin, would you like to start? Yeah, thanks. So basically what we're looking at in this article is the timing of, um, of restrictions uh, aimed at containing the COVID-19 pandemic in the Middle East and North Africa. Uh, so we look at a total of 21 countries and try to understand why some of them locked down earlier than others, right? And we can talk about later what lockdown means in particular in this, uh, in this article. Um, and we do this in the context of uh, a rather prominent um, argument, which is out there, not so much in the discipline maybe, but more in the kind of public discussion, also public health discussion, which is this argument that there's an autocratic advantage when it comes to containing uh, the pandemic. And we think there are kind of two problems with this argument. One is that this is usually seen as a kind of a, a dichotomy between democracy and autocracy. Uh, so kind of misses out a lot of variation when it comes to, uh, to political regimes. Um, and the, the, the other one uh, is that uh, um, it really misses the question of what are the incentives for political leaders to actually implement these um, these con uh, containment measures. And we look at both of these things. And so we start by disaggregating regimes and rather than looking at uh, autocracy, uh, democracy uh, dichotomies, we look at um, uh, kind of a more gradual uh, distinction, uh, in particular, the size of winning coalitions. And we can talk more about what exactly that means. And the second thing is, and this is also connected to this question of size of winning coalitions, uh, is that we argue that public health measures are a public good. And because they're a public good, uh, incentives to provide these public goods really depend on you know, kind of the, the constituency you're aiming at, right? So the larger your winning coalition, the more likely you are as a public leader, as a po political leader to provide public goods. And basically what we show is that containment measures, COVID containment measures, are just as other public goods in the sense that you know, uh, they, they kind of follow this logic of the size of winning coalitions. That's the overall mm -hmm. argument that we're trying to make, which also means that you know, uh, kind of contrary to the, to the autocracy argument that more closed, more autocratic uh, regimes tend to lock down later rather than earlier. So they're less effective in a sense than, than democracies. 
Really interesting. So um, to do this, uh, use uh, you know existing data. You collected some of your own data. Uh, Jonah, tell us a little bit about what you did and uh, kind of the methodology behind this. One of the things we were interested in, Mark, was uh, kind of looking at the situation, not just across the region, but also informed by our own experiences living through the pandemic, was to try to figure out how we could accurately measure what lockdowns were. Mm -hmm. And we started consulting some of the existing data out there. So there's a very helpful data set uh, published by Oxford, the Oxford COVID-19 government response tracker. And we were looking at this. And then we realized that sometimes uh, the indicators there didn't match up with how people experience lockdown on the ground, that there were some things that on paper sounded like they were lockdowns, but in fact, they were not. And so then we became interested in creating our own data on this, at least for the Middle East. So we did two things. Um, we came up with a strict definition of lockdown and then uh, with the help of a great uh, undergraduate research assistant at Leiden, uh, we collected data on this. And then we also thought that it would be useful to see beyond just these ideas of is the entire country shutting down, uh, when were governments motivated enough to address the problem such that they were willing to close uh, places of worship? So then we also collected data on mosque closures across the region, and we used these two new variables from our own data uh, alongside the Oxford data, and we show that um, these findings about the size of winning coalitions hold when you look at these uh, different uh, variables measuring re government responses. So in that sense, the findings are quite robust, mm -hmm. um, and we really show that uh, the size of winning coalitions, basically, if, if you want to think about it, how much of the public is the government responsible to, the larger that is, uh, the more likely they are to treat this as uh, a public health crisis that they want to solve rather than uh, something that is going to threaten the private benefits that their coalition is getting and how to deal with that. So explain this winning coalitions a bit uh, for people to really understand what you're talking about. Give us some examples uh, maybe of countries with like different size winning coalitions. Uh, Jonah? Uh, so I was going to ask Kevin about this because um, we, we have a case study of Egypt uh, in the article, and um, this this is Kevin's uh, mm -hmm. expertise, and I think there's some interesting um, findings about Egypt because uh, it actually is um, not necessarily what, what you would expect comparing Egypt to other countries, so I'll let Kevin uh, talk more about that. But what I'll say just quickly about the variable um, is that this is kind of an index of, or a composite variable where we're looking at several different dimensions. So first of all, we were looking at whether this was a military regime. Um, we were also looking at how competitive was uh, what uh, the Polity Project calls executive recruitment, meaning um, how possible is it for many different people to be mm -hmm. uh, running for the highest office. Then we also look at the openness of executive recruitment, and we look at competitiveness of participation in uh, the selection process of the government. So this is a kind of range of, of different variables, and that produces this winning coalition uh, score size. And I should say, this is not uh, something we came up with. We're building on a very developed literature here. The mm -hmm. article that we're following is Morrow et al. 2008, 
Uh, so this is kind of an established way of measuring winning coalition size, and we're implementing that for the Middle East to see how it works uh, for the pandemic. Well, so maybe before we go to kind of the key region-wide findings, Kevin, do you want to talk about Egypt and kind of illustrate this concept for us a bit? Sure. I mean, so Jonah already told us how, you know, we operationalized um, uh, winning coalition size. And as he said, this is kind of an established way of doing this. This is not something we came up with. Um, but if you want to think about this in conceptual terms, what a winning coalition really is, is kind of the the group of people that the regime relies on in order to stay in power, right? So they're accountable to them because of the, the fact that, uh, at least that's the assumption, right, that um, political leaders usually want to stay in power. Um, and as Jonah already hinted at, if you look at this particular measure and look at the different countries in the region, there are some things that might not be super intuitive when you look uh, at this from kind of a, a classical regime type perspective. It's a bit different from regime types, right? So the entire range of the measure is from zero to, to three in our, uh, in our cases. There would technically be also a four, but it doesn't exist in the Middle East. And on the lower end of this, you have cases such as Algeria, you have cases such as um, Egypt, uh, Sudan. So you already see what is clustering here are the military regimes, right? So because this is the first question that you ask, is this based on the military? And then you have these other dimensions that uh, that Jonah already talked about that then add um, uh, more values. Uh, so Egypt would really be an example of a very small winning coalition, which I think empirically makes a lot of sense if you look at how uh, Egyptian politics works and who the leadership is actually accountable to, right? This would be uh, military elites in uh, in particular, of course, and then maybe one or or, or two sectors in kind of a business affiliated uh, elites. That's really the the core constituency of this regime, and that's wh who they care about. Um, now, on the other end of the spectrum, just to be uh, uh, be a bit more comprehensive here, you have cases such as, of course, Tunisia. Uh, maybe would now change the rating a little bit after uh, after the the power grab last July. But at least in the time at the time when we were doing this, this is kind of the open type of political uh, of, of winning coalition, the big winning coalition in, in the region, along with uh, Iraq, Israel. Um, uh, and uh, I think that's actually all uh, countries that really have that score high in terms of the size of winning coalitions. So that's the that's the logic of this variable. And this is what we what we do. Great. So why don't we um, kind of hear a little bit then about like the key trends and findings. Um, uh, Jonah, do you want to kind of review kind of what you found? Yeah. Uh, so in a nutshell, the, the key finding is that the larger the winning coalition, the more likely regimes are to uh, respond to the COVID pandemic as uh, something that should be a problem that's solved for the entire public, uh, which we uh, see as leading to shutdown. So there, there, it's interesting because there's some, some debate over whether shutting down countries was the appropriate public health measure. But um, assuming that you believe that that's the appropriate public health measure in this case, then governments that were more responsive to the widest uh, segment of the population were likely to shut down the fastest here. And um, Part of what interests me about this finding is, as Kevin said, it's not about this dichotomous democracy-autocracy distinction. So um, Egypt, for example, scores 
the lowest on this winning coalition size, but Saudi Arabia, which is a monarchy, actually scores in one category higher. And we do see differences across these countries. So it's not as simple as saying autocracies in the region or monarchies behave a certain way. We actually see gradations here. And I think from the perspective of understanding uh, how governments respond to public health crises, this is important. It's not the case that all autocracies respond the same way. And as we're all familiar with, and I'm sure you're familiar with from your experience in the US, not all democracies respond mm -hmm. the same way here as well. So, so it's that sort of single finding about winning coalition size, but at the same time, this implication that we really shouldn't look within regime types to better understand what's going on. And um, as we mentioned in the conclusion to the article, we think there are actually some uh, follow-up research that can be done here, building on our work to look at um, differences in winning coalition sizes within democracies to see if this is also affecting the dynamics, um, because as you might imagine, you know, in um, in contexts in which uh, there's sort of higher degrees of electoral uh, competitiveness, uh, on the one hand, that sort of pushes towards doing policies that benefit the largest uh, segment of the population. On the other hand, depending on the rules of electoral competition, so if you're in the U.S and um, you, you have districts set up in a certain way, you may only care about a very net, uh, small segment of the population. And that would go in the other direction uh, to say that maybe you wouldn't actually see shutdowns happening as quickly uh, because of those political incentives. Now you added in um, this, uh, this extra research on mosques and mosque closures. What did that add to the analysis? Kevin? Well, so the reason why we did this is that we really thought that mosque closure is something that is particularly expensive in a sense as a, mm -hmm. uh, as a containment measure, right? It has the highest or not, maybe not the highest, but it has higher uh, political costs than other types of, uh, of lockdown measures. And so we thought that looking at this in particular would give us a specific insight into how this works in the region. And indeed, uh, if you look at some of the examples that we also discuss in, in the article, there has been some contention around the closure of mosques and, uh, and uh, shrines and, and similar religious sites, uh, which kind of goes to show that this is indeed a contentious thing. And th since we were interested in kind of this trade-off between kind of the political costs of, of lockdown and the public health benefits of it, uh, this seemed like a, a good choice to to look at in addition to the to the measures that are in the in the Oxford uh, government response tracker. I mean, one of the things we all know about the many of these Middle Eastern cases is that the other response is simply to uh, stop reporting it or to make up the data and uh, and let it run wild. Um, but you didn't really that, that you didn't really look at that as much in the data, though. You were you were working with reported data. Yes. Yes. So what, what might that do to the analysis if you started bringing in, um, you know, the idea of authoritarian regimes just flat out um, not caring? So um, maybe I can say a little bit about this. Um, what we, we noticed this in um, some of the cases and, and we describe it in the article that in Egypt, for example, this is part of the response. The idea is to show uh, well, the crisis isn't so bad, there's no need to lock down. Um, and and uh, doctors associations that are trying to talk about the problems are kind of muzzled. 
Uh, we see this also in, in other cases like Turkey, where the public health authorities will send out a message saying we need to take the following measures. And then the prime, uh, Erdogan's office says, no, uh, that's wrong. We're not going to do that. So um, I think um, our one of our interests was also to see like what are some of the consequences of these behaviors too, but that's actually where these data problems come more to the fore. If we want to look at um, the public health effects, it can be hard with some of these cases because the data uh, simply isn't there or has been manipulated as you uh, suggest. So we thought, okay, let's let's take one step back. Let's look first at what the response is yeah. and in particular how quickly it's happening. And we can be sure we can say something about that because we can observe whether these countries are shutting down or not. And um, in that sense, we're very confident in the data because um, you know, I can't speak so much the details of the Oxford data, but for our own data on strict closures and mosque closures, we did uh, fairly extensive research um, with reporting on these. So we're not taking the government's word for it. We're actually looking at observations on the ground of was this happening? And then we're able to say, okay, yes, there was a strict lockdown. Yes, there was a mosque closure. Well, great. Thanks uh, so much, uh, John and Kevin, for talking about this really important research. Um, and thanks for joining us. Thank you, Mark. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's topical segment, we're joined by Sean Yom of Temple University and Wael Al-Khatib of the Arab Political Science Network to talk about a recent report they authored on the prospects for political reform in Jordan. Sean, Wael, thank you so much for joining us. So why don't you um, tell us a little bit about this reform initiative? Obviously, there's been uh, efforts at reform in Jordan for many years. They never seem to really go anywhere. But your report suggests that this time might be a little different. Uh, Sean, why don't you start us off? Yeah, I, I would love to, Mark. So uh, this past summer, uh, King Abdullah of Jordan uh, authorized and appointed a 92-person uh, Royal Reform Commission uh, that was devoted to brainstorming uh, and then um, uh, formulating initiatives for potentially democratizing or at least reforming the Jordanian political system. As many of our listeners might know, the Jordanian political system is a uh, is an authoritarian one. It's one where there is a ruling monarchy in power. Uh, it is one where most institutions that hold real rulemaking authority over the population are not elected. There is a parliament with an elected lower house, but that parliament has very little real autonomy or independence from the monarchy and other institutions that hold power in Jordan, including the security institutions. Um, uh, and among them are, of course, the police, the military and the intelligence services. Uh, the idea behind the Reform Commission uh, was that because of the rapid pace of protests over the last decade, in fact, decades in Jordan, and the uh, apparent need to reform the system, uh, the king was going to appoint a new top-down commission designed to think about ways that Jordan could be nudged towards democracy. Um, and that's why we wrote the report. We wanted to know more about uh, why this reform commission uh, was in place, uh, what its goals were, uh, it released its findings this past October in the form of proposed constitutional amendments. A parliament then uh, considered them. And this past January, parliament finally ratified 
some of those proposed constitutional amendments along with other amendments that I will uh, talk about. And the idea behind the commission and the amendments it proposed and behind this entire reform process dating back uh, since the summer is that in 10 years, Jordan could become a constitutional monarchy with the government led by the prime minister appointed by parliament and uh, that government composed of people from elected political parties with the monarchy gradually fading to the background in terms of its level of authority and power. Um, and in that way, Jordan could be a critical test case of democratization um, in the region. But while uh, the, the package that's actually being put forward doesn't necessarily resemble the one that uh, the committee came up with, uh, can you tell us about kind of what happened and what is actually, how the regime has responded to these ideas? Yeah, I could say that the benefit of having such a committee is to create kind of national dialogue on different uh, levels and platforms, not only on digital media, but also we have seen lots of uh, offline meetings by young people, by the committee members themselves, by other actors in the society. They are talking about the process of uh, reform in the country and how it will shape the future of Jordan, as Sean was mentioning uh, uh, now. So it's been a while since the last commission and uh, has been, uh, you know, in 2012, we had one at that time, but now we, ha we are having this one where is lots of cultural and societal perception behind the idea of having uh, such a committee. So this committee is about to draw the line of political change at the country level, because, you know, with the economic hardship, the unemployment rate and other challenges in the post-COVID time, so the state and the monarchy uh, is seeing this uh, committee as a, uh, a change for the young generations because Jordan, you know, has been into other uh, problem and economic uh, challenges during the past two years, in addition to some uh, social uh, problem facing young people, such as drug dealing and drug use among young generations, which is a very high risk when it comes to change the, uh, make the uh, freedom of expression more open and having people around that. So this is the idea of having such a committee in addition to some uh, reasons regarding the uh, what's going on in the region and the other uh, challenges facing the monarchy. So that was the solution of having such a committee, but the risk here is if the recommendations of this committee will be uh, not success successful, so then we will be facing another kind of frustration among uh, local people. Having an elected government is a very important thing in Jordan, but we should ask ourselves about the uh, the form and the shape of these kind of political parties, because as we know that Jordan is not willing to have very strong uh, and democratic political parties. In a 10 million uh, population country, we have uh, almost 55 uh, political party, which is a very big number for a country that has been for 30 years without uh, political parties during the emergency law. So these are the concerns that we should take into consideration and talk when and discuss when we talk about a political change in the country. So what exactly then were some of the, the, the um, 
kind of the, the things which this challenge, like if these reforms actually went forward, who would, who would win and who would lose? Why? I think we have the uh, traditional bureaucracy or the conservative in Jordan. I mean, conservative in Jordan means the traditional powers and the bureaucracy that they are, they don't have any interest in any political reform because they don't feel that there is a need for changing the uh, current situation. So these kind of uh, political uh, powers, not at the political level, but at the social level, we have resistance by the traditional powers who wants to keep the situation as it is because they feel that there is no need for regime. Regardless the palace who believes that it should going further with more uh, change at the political system in Jordan, because even the palace is having and feeling the uh, danger of having weak parliament and not very strong uh, legislative powers. So these are the powers who does not want Jordan to move forward in political parties. But I think in my personal opinion that most of young generations and other civil society activists and other political powers, they will be uh, the ones who are winning uh, in this term. Yeah. And so, I will just... Oh, Sean, go ahead. Uh, yeah, Mark, I was just going to add uh, one uh, one final point on this, on this discussion. Uh, there are a lot of flashpoints of potential reform in Jordan that nicely capture what Wael was talking about in terms of the battle between so-called conservatives and those who say the current system is fine versus reformists, uh, including youth activists, uh, some liberal politicians and others who want to change the system. Um, and the constitutional amendments proposed by the commission this fall and promulgated by parliament, uh, or rather ratified by parliament this January, is, is a perfect test case of them. So one of the things that the commission proposed was that over a 10-year period, with every successive elections every four years, uh, parliament would be gradually composed more and more by representatives from elected political parties with the idea that Jordanian politics should be led by political parties and not the current composition of parliament, which is mostly independent candidates and independent MPs who uh, get elected for reasons other than their policy platforms uh, and uh, or their personalities or their tribal connections or money and so forth. Now, that amendment uh, was part of the package that got passed this January, but one of the amendments that the government inserted into these parliamentary discussions in which we talk about in our report was the corollary amendment that even if parliament were to be gradually led by elected political parties, there would be other new state institutions that would supplement parliament's new role in leading Jordan. One of those institutions, and this was a government amendment inserted in the discussions which were all passed last month in January, was the creation of a national security and foreign policy council, which would be independent of any political party independent of any government the parliament forms, led by the king, filled with the heads of the military, security institutions, and other uh, currently regime-controlled institutions. And that council would have supreme control over all of foreign policy and all of national security uh, policies in Jordan. So it's like the commission plotted out a way for Jordan to have a democratic government only for that 
the current regime to then say, even if this happens, certain issues will still be controlled by unelected authorities. And this is a good encapsulation of that give and take that Wiley was talking about. There are conservatives, there are reformists, and they always kind of wage these immense battles uh, back and forth uh, inside the country. So you, you describe in the report and in other work that you've done that a lot of the impetus for this is coming from youth dissatisfaction and not necessarily formal political opposition, but just this general, um, the Hirak, the, the wave of popular protest and all of these. Can you tell us kind of where are they now in these last few minutes? Just describe what's happened with uh, youth and how, how engaged are they in this, um, in this reform process? Sean? Yeah. Yeah, I, I would love to. And just thinking about uh, the, the, the breadth and the depth of the social terrain in Jordan, it's difficult to formulate a singular uh, encapsulation uh, of opposition dynamics uh, because it's so rich, it's so variegated, um, and it's so uh, dynamic. Uh, but one thing I can say, uh, and I think why I will have more to add, is that it takes a lot to convince young people in Jordan that their elders, their politicians, their authority figures are actually doing right by the country. And by this, I mean, everyone has a reason to protest in Jordan, particularly the young. Uh, they don't have the same values. They don't have the same ideology. Many don't have any ideology. They belong to different networks. They're not all a monolithic social column. But in general, it is true that Younger Jordanians have led many of the protests in the country over the last 10 to 20 years over hot button issues, whether it's about Palestine and Israel or unemployment or corruption or the Arab uprisings uh, or some other issue. Uh, the problem with this reform dynamic that we've been talking about in our POMED report uh, and other writings is that youth have been promised endlessly over the past generation uh, by the king and other authority figures that change is coming, democracy is coming, reform is coming. And every time there's a reform commission to propose this, whether it was back in 2005 or there was another one that Wilde talked about in 2012, they've been disappointed by the results. And it looks like that it could be a trajectory where the current reform path is going. There was a reform commission, the king himself authorized it, they proposed a bunch of amendments, they said in 10 years Jordan will be a democracy, and then the government intervenes, they insert all these other amendments, and now no one really knows what's really happening. And the danger here is that uh, all the different protests we've seen in Jordan by young people could rise again, they could burst into the scene once more, uh, and then the regime and, uh, its, uh, uh, um, and its overseers will have a whole other set of issues to worry about since the economy is not doing any better after COVID, or rather during COVID, um, and the social problems that Wael was talking about in terms of uh, widespread apathy, rising drug use, and so forth, they're also getting remarkably worse as well. Um, and I think Wael here can fill in the more gritty details about different youth groups uh, and networks in the country that are reacting very strongly uh, against uh, the reform battle now. Wael, why don't we give the last word to you then? Yeah, and I'll start from the uh, National Security and Foreign Policy Council, which has to be an advisory state institution not an executive power. This is one of the most problematic issues when it comes to discuss uh, any uh, kind of political reform in the country. 
And these kind of constitutional amendments have to be uh, to going through a referendum process where all people will be voting in any core changes in the constitution, because the Jordanian constitution since the uh, 52 till now has so many changes which change the entire core and entire objective of the uh, uh, constitution, which is a constitutional monarchy. Back to these uh, uh, groups, uh, not only in the capital of Jordan, Amman, but all over the country, people, they are more, they less confidence in any process because they have experience with kind of committees before formed and promises to uh, do uh, further steps in order to having more uh, stronger parliaments and more stronger policymakers in the future. There is a leadership uh, issue when it comes to political parties because the Jordan is missing this kind of political leadership that's able to uh, lead the governments in the future. We are having uh, in next month local elections where some of the most organized political parties, which is the Islamic Action Front, will boycott that uh, elections. So how come you will go with elections with no uh, strong political party infrastructure and strong political party uh, culture among society. This is a big challenge because if you go outside Amman and the countryside, you will not find these kind of perceptions among political parties. This is why young people, they don't believe on political participation to change the existing uh, problems such as economy and other un un unemployment issues, which is very important when it comes to a country like Jordan. Also, the national the identity politics and the identity dialogue is still a cloudy thing that Jordanian is not agreeing on that. So these are the things that young people are concerned about and are uh, talking about it all the time. Well, great. Thank you, uh, Sean Weil. Thank you so much for joining us.